You know, my biggest worry with that phrase is the use of the word fan. Honestly, I think it's the most dangerous word around sport. It triggers a whole bunch of assumptions. It uses one word to describe what are multiple audiences. Hello and welcome back to the Sport in Crypto podcast where we talk to leaders in sport and Web3. And in this episode, I am joined by Richard Ayers, who is the co-founder of Rematch. Richard, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Would you define yourself as a, as a leader at this intersection? No. <laughs> <laughs> so why are you here? I'm asking you, that's what I was asking you. Why am I here? Um, it's very strange, you know, just because you have a big grey beard doesn't mean that you are a grey beard, you know, that you've become this sort of elder statesman. Or maybe you're just old. Is that what it is? Am I just old enough that I've been around long enough that people are going, yeah, well, I, for years... I claim to not really know anything about sport, particularly football. And uh, now been working here for a dozen years, I can't really get away with that anymore. So uh, yeah, I guess I've done a few things. Before we get into the few things, why don't you tell the audience a bit about what you're concentrating your energy on right now with Rematch? Well, it's time travel. It is taking people back to incredibly powerful and inspiring moments in sport and creating immersive experiences. And uh, I mean, as we know, immersive covers a multitude of sins and it means loads of things to different people, but we are primarily focused at the moment on a live performance. We've taken a, a warehouse and we've converted it. And when you step through that doorway and you go through the time traveling portal, you end up in Kinshasa in 1974 and you have an experience of the rumble in the jungle and the Ali Foreman fight and all the culture and all the history and all the politics and everything else that goes around it as well. So it's it's fun times. And part of that is not just telling the sports story, but also building out the digital capability, the other types of immersive that might come with it. So we're starting with physical immersive, you know, performance immersive, as it were. And of course, we've got a little prototype where we built something where there's a VR experience and we've got conversations about AR experiences and we've got a blockchain-based membership scheme in the background because, like, why wouldn't you do it that way? Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these things sort of coming together to create this immersive world. Before we get into a bunch of that stuff, why don't you tell the listeners, viewers, about your journey up until that point? That is uh, 30 years. I'm going to do it in less than 30 seconds, I hope. I'm going to go uh, hack to hacker. I only came up with that this morning when I, I thought you might ask me, what the hell have you been doing in your career? I was originally a journalist for the BBC and the web came out in the mid 90s and I was, you know, merrily doing new stuff and then ended up launching the BBC News, uh, BBC Sport websites. Then I went commercial, dot com days, tiskly for those who remember ISP portal stuff in Europe. And then from that went freelancing and was working on, you know, various public service projects and got randomly got asked to go to Man City who were, and I quote, spending truckloads of money on digital and we don't know what we're getting for it. And I went to do a two-week consulting gig and stayed for two and a half years and was their first head of digital and, and, and built the sort of innovation strategy around that. And then lots of other people asked me to do more in sport and I thought this is fun and amazing and also makes a real difference to people. So I stuck with it and formed an agency called Seven League. And then just a couple of years ago, that agency became part of IMG, now part of the IMG ecosystem. And then I am thankfully still involved with those guys. I just sort of, you know, go around stroking my beard and looking after everybody a little bit. But mostly I focus on rematch. And then Web3, crypto, blockchain, where did that interest stem from? 
Well, partly if you're an old nerd like me, you're you're fascinated by all of that. I mean, it's the thing that we love, isn't it? Isn't this the thing that we love about this industry and about all of this development that we've seen in our lifetime, which is going to be more impactful than, you know, I mean, than when electricity came in or when, you know, sound, I mean, like it's one of those massive cultural shifts, this era that we're living in. And we're very lucky. And so, of course, I'm interested in all of the latest developments all the time, that constant learning. And yes, I tinkered uh, because we all tinker. And that's, again, that's part of the love of it. But it was pretty easy to see. At least I thought it was pretty easy to see that this there were some really massive sort of step change elements in here that felt like when the web came out. You know, they felt like that sort of really, those really big moments. And as ever, Gartner hype cycle, as ever, you go through those cycles of people get massively overexcited and then the trough of despair and then the plateau of blah, blah, blah. Actually, friends of mine who invent stuff say that that Gartner hype cycle is missing the cliff of desperation because at some stage, you know, where where it all just stops, everything dies and kind of in there. But along that journey, it was pretty clear to me that um, blockchain technology in particular and everything that comes from that was going to be incredibly powerful. So I better start learning. And that's how we connected, right? You were like, talk to me about this stuff. And I was like, why are you interested in it? And actually, when I, sometimes I ask you questions about this might not work and this might not work. And you always say to me, it's exactly what they said about X yeah. 20 years ago, <laughs> which is always funny and reassuring for well, me. Well, it is. I hope so. But I, And I, I'm so wary of not being like old. Nobody wants the old man of the hills who says, oh, yes, we've been there and seen it and done. Like it is all totally new and different. But the thing that is so important in all of this is, you know, it's always the humans that are the problem. Like it always is. Or any human invention throughout time, it's the human reaction to it that's the issue. And that means culture, and that means language, and that means the way in which, you know, every time a new piece of tech comes out, how much jargon is there around it? How many three-letter acronyms? How many times is, are people kept at bay because we're the technologists and we want to be able to talk about our cool new thing in a way that's completely unhelpful in, in terms of mass distribution and, and acceptance of a technology? That happens every single time. And it's, it's understandable. It's about territory and ownership. And, you know, I'm a technologist who's been working away in my bedroom, like slaving away to invent something. Of course, I want to still hold on to it and keep it myself. But those are the patterns that I think in, in many ways are the ones I want to see changing. The uh, one thing that really frustrates me is when this is not our first rodeo. This should not be our first rodeo. Every sector has been affected by digital transformation in some way in the last 25 years. That means everybody who's working in business has had some experience of digital transformation totally playing with whatever world of work they're in. Like they shouldn't be surprised that disruption is there and is coming and there's going to be more and it's going to get faster. And our job, particularly as you know, old guys like me, is to make sure that organizations and people are set up in a way that means young guys like you, and I'm using guys, by the way, in a non-gender explicit kind of way, but younger people, we need to make sure we're creating an environment that means you can accelerate and thrive and not have to go through the pain barriers that we did. Because when I was at the BBC and telling people about the web was really important and here, where should we go? I mean, I had very, very famous old journalist called Brian Hanrahan uh, from, this is 20, 30 years ago. He reported on wars. I mean, it was incredibly famous sort of, you know, and his response to me saying, <clears throat> could we do a blog? Like nothing complicated, just could we do a blog? His response was, I don't do words. I'm a radio journalist that like just would not accept the idea. You know, and the number of TV producers who were like, yeah, the internet, whatever, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And now I get to look back and laugh. But actually, technological acceptance in the BBC, for example, would have gone a damn sight quicker if some of those people had just got themselves out of the way, been accepting and supportive instead. So that's what I think we need to do now. 
It's weird, isn't it? I mean, um, even when the iPhone came out, there was all this kind of like, you always see those articles that get propped up and it's in like 2006 and Apple have just done the first demo and everyone's like, five reasons the iPhone will fail. And it's from like leading tech editors at the time. And you're like, how could you be so wrong? I suppose you, you can't always be right. And I do think some of the criticism of this space, uh, the Web3 world, is totally valid. And I think some of those predictions will come true. Some of them will come absolutely untrue as the years go by. But I want to ask you a question. So centering in on, on kind of blockchain in sport, where do you think this has been utilized badly so far and why? So first of all, you know how little I know about this, really. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be one of those guys. You know, you've had so many people, either you've interviewed them or they've been on here, and they are really properly leading experts. Like, I'm not, okay? But as a dabbler, as an admirer of the art and seeing what's going on, it is fascinating to watch some stuff that does look like it's clangingly obvious. I mean, you say that you don't know that much, right? And you might not know that much about the crypto elements specifically, but you know enough, you said you're a dabbler. You've also seen tech cycles and you also know more than enough about sports business and partnerships. So I do think you're selling yourself short. Uh, all right, all right. <laughs> Guilty as charged. And like, there's some knowledge there, but you know, you don't want to be the charlatan who's pretending, yeah, especially because you get caught out. <laughs> the biggest mistakes, that's the question, right? I would say that assumption of fan behavior in we're talking about specifically in sport the assumption of fan behavior as generic consumers that is the one that's the one that is misunderstand your audience i mean any product launch any sensible business should know that understanding your audience is absolute priority number one um, because it doesn't matter if your product is amazing or dreadful if you don't understand the audience you're never going to have a chance for it to be accepted or purchased or anything else so for example i feel i'm going to name a name this is you don't normally do this but for example, our friends at Socios, I think they had fundamentally a good idea, but they waltzed into it like it was a generic customer.com days, like we were 20 years earlier. They got a whole bunch of sporting clubs, most of whom did not do a good enough job of educating themselves and getting on top of it. So they absolutely have blame and accountability in this as well. Some of whom were just coming out of COVID. They were going out through financial, real challenging times. They just needed to do a thing and take a deal. And I understand that desire as well. You know, commercial directors going, listen, I don't really care. I just, let's just get the deal done. I mean, that's, we're not even talking about the stuff that was done on shirt deals where they didn't do the due diligence, but I'm just talking the actual reality of taking a product, integrating it and putting it out to an audience. The lack of understanding of how that might be received and the pushback that it would get seemed to me bloody obvious and they just walked into that minefield. And that, it's not great for their business, it's not great for the sporting club, it's also not great for the uptake of the technology full stop. I think sometimes we as a sector, technology sector and sports sector, we don't do enough sharing, we don't do enough onboarding, we don't do enough, oh, let's talk about the insights, let's find it, oh, there's a new technology, great, let's set up a panel where we can all share what the opportunities are, not let's all individually just see what deals we can get away with and what products we can quickly sort of splurt out somewhere in case all that splatter it against the wall, maybe something will stick. That I would go biggest issue. You mentioned the commercial side of this, right? There was a chart I saw the other day about the Premier League rights deals kind of plateauing slightly in terms of revenue. We're seeing that potentially across the pond as well with the NBA, maybe not this cycle of rights, but maybe the one after. And we've already seen that in European football as well with Liga and Serie A really struggling. And do you think the pressure on commercial teams in sport to make 
a bigger margin elsewhere beyond just the golden goose, which we all know is broadcasting rights within sponsorships, within merchandise, within digital, whatever it may be. Is that cranking up because of where we are in this kind of the business model of sports cycle? I think the pressure is always intense. Having worked with a lot of those guys, you know, in commercial sports business, it's always intense. It just gets dialed up in some areas and then dialed up in other. You know. And so is there a increased expectation and an opportunity? Yes. Just like there was, oh God, I'm going to do it again. Old man, gray beard. Just like there was with social, right? When social platforms first came out, people did stuff and it was all cool new and it was marketing and communications. And the commercial guys just went, yeah, whatever. Like that's never going to make any money. And then as soon as it became obvious that there were ways to make money out of it, then they were like, okay, now we need to start nailing that. Here's a target. You need to hit it. And all of which was relatively uneducated and overhyped expectations. I mean, to be fair, there were some of the smart people who then actually focused in on the right thing, the right deal, the right, you know, just gradually ratcheting things up and, and learning more. And so we're seeing a bit of that. We're seeing a bit of overhyped expectations about where my money might come from. You remember, of course, the Dapper Labs NBA Topshop. I won't name them, but a number of other large other sports organizations of a similar size and scale to the NBA turned to me and went, oh my God, how did we miss this? How did we not see that you could, quick, quick, let's do one. You know, and you had this sort of like, <laughs> the NBA has spent 10 years making sure that it has really great connections and a close understanding and a good internal culture that is digitally native. Digital DNA is high in the NBA. Not every, not all of it, but like relatively high. And those connections with those sectors and those organizations, those companies, those innovators, meant that sure enough, when somebody had a cool new idea and the NBA were interested in doing it, they worked on a launch. They were probably working on launching Topshop for a minimum year, probably two, if not three, from the initial conversations. And so if you're a large-scale football organization, you can't blink of an eye go, oh, quick, let's do that as well. That's just ridiculous. Put it in this perspective, right? We had Rob Young on episode 10 of the podcast, and he, as he described it, was lucky enough to meet Dapper in... 2016, 17, when they were building out in a hackathon, the first, now we call it NFT on Ethereum. And they didn't launch the MBA Top Shot concept, I don't think until late 2018 or early 2019 in beta. And so between that hackathon project and launch, there would have had to been some investment, growth of team, connect to the MBA, work with the MBA's team to license and make the deal, agree the deal. I think the NBA have a, a stake in that JVC. So, you know, that there is a lot of complexities around that to make, as you mentioned, there's no such thing as an overnight success, right? No, no. And, and, and you're absolutely right. So they've got the cultural register to focus on that kind of thing, to see it early. They've got the people who will see it early and will educate themselves. And then they've got the commercial smarts to say, and we're not just going to sit back here and go, yeah, you guys innovate all you like. And when you're good and ready, come and talk to us because we're the big sports brand, right? They don't, they get involved and they know that people know they're going to get involved. They know they're going to have a sensible commercial conversation and that makes a big difference. And they know they're sometimes going to not do that well, right? With certain things. I mean, the, the partnership with uh, Niantic looked really exciting. And I remember writing about it being like, this is such a smart move. Like Niantic have done really well with Pokemon Go. They're making loads of money there. And of course they should go B2B after that first licensed victory and sports makes total sense. And they built out this concept. It looked really great. You could do the Pokemon Go type, go and shoot baskets with Steph Curry thing. Yeah. Six months later, it's gone, right? And 
it doesn't mean that like every single one of those innovative projects is going to be a success. And that's the stuff that those other sports leaders didn't look at. Maybe now this, oh God, I wish we'd made 100 million bucks from Top Shot or whatever it was. And But then they don't look at the failures that some of these brands have as well. We used to talk about fail fast, fail better. You know, that was the old dot-com valley type phraseology. When I first came into sport, I used that, you know, very quickly I realized that the sports business people are just not comfortable with the word fail, particularly if it's not their area. And so we morphed that, of course, into test and learn. But as you say, like the acceptance that some of these things, the NBA will have taken, because they're good like this, they will have taken a whole bunch of learnings. Did they want it to be successful? Of course they did. But when it struggled and then it ultimately died, the learnings they will have taken away from that should be really positive. And if I was looking at it as an investor externally, I'd be saying, okay, that, that was good. That's, that's a good, painful process to go through. And so you can now be better the next time. But back to a point you were making a second ago, you will have seen the graph of terrestrial viewers of the All-Star games, the NBA game. Like, that is not a happy graph. And when you go, why is Adam Silver doing, I think it was the beginning of uh, 23, wasn't it, where there was a... Um, him filming a guy, actually it must have been summer, summer 23, him filming a guy and then within seconds that being embedded on the thing. Like, okay, cool. That is proper shiny bauble stuff. I'm only ever going to do that once. That is a one-off, cool, new, interesting thing to show, which Adam Silver gets to stand up and make a song and a dance around. That is not a product. That is not a product set or a portfolio, or at least not yet. And therefore, why the hell is he doing that? And the answer is because he's pursuing, basically, he's doing exactly what I did at Man City, you know, back in 11, 12, 13, he is saying, look at us. We are guys who will do cool, new, sexy, shiny bauble stuff, but we're also properly invested in the business in the back end. And it's a badge. It's a flag of an attention grabbing. We are the people you want to work with in the future because he knows everything from subscription fatigue, like it's a big issue. Everybody gets massively overexcited by Drive to Survive. That's, that's another overexcitement. We like getting overexcited about stuff, which is great. But, you know, you get to series four and you start watching people go, really, again? You're manufacturing stories now. Like, really? That's hard. You know, or you look at some of the others which get accused of being very um, sort of editorially led. So, okay, the content and the storytelling can get you so far. The streaming it on your own platform, the OTT service, that's a really good, interesting opportunity. For some sports, perfect. For others, not so much. But we're going to go through all these media expansion contractions all the time. Actually, as an aside, I'm gabbling away. You've got me excited on these topics. MLS, I think, are always super interesting to look at. Have you had a look at any of the stuff they do? Some of the clubs, yeah. I've written about some of the, the like LAFC launching digital membership on, on the blockchain type of thing. We've written about that, but beyond that, not too much. It's cultural. The cultural thing is really interesting. So an American environment, so therefore naturally they're all au fait with all this stuff. You know, they're not stuck in the old ways quite so much. They are absolutely the challenger. They are a challenger brand. They get the fewest column inches, the least airtime, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that makes you, you have to push harder. You have to be interested. You have to give leeway to try things, which they have done. And there's a the guy leading there, uh, MLS Ventures it is now, a guy called Chris Schlosser, who did just great work. Right in, when I was working with him in 2013 when he needed a nerd to go around the clubs and help the clubs understand how to do things better. It was a throwaway comment I said to him one time. I was talking about rugby. You know the way you have chess cams in rugby? And, and I said, do you know what I really want is I want a head-mounted cam in football, in soccer. Because then I'm going to get to see the eye line when he's looking in the face of that guy as he's giving a penalty or, you know, that would be really cool. Throwaway comment. And three weeks later, Chris had delivered it as part of the, uh, the All-Star game that year. 
And it completely broke all the FIFA rules and they weren't supposed to do it, but just got on with it and did it. Same guy, you forward wind, I think, five years and him and Amanda van der Voort and a bunch of other people in, in the MLS put together the deal with, there was some use of the Latin American social media rights, the Facebook deal, which had a sort of English language clause in it, which could be done away. And so they suddenly, they're streaming games on Facebook. Again, you're not supposed to do and wasn't really part of it. The, and they're way ahead of, way ahead of the time because they built relationships with Facebook, because they've done a smart thing with the contract, because they can see an opportunity to try something. You forward wind again, they're the guys who do the deal with Apple for the streaming service for 2.5 billion. This doesn't come overnight, stacks up over time. I guarantee you MLS is doing some interesting things around crypto and they will be thinking and looking and doing partnerships and building for the next three, five, 10 years. Not, can I make a quick buck today? Is there a deal to be done? I just want to pick up on a point you made about, um, and that was really interesting, by the way, fascinating. Yes, something <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but you talked about um, the way social came about and how it didn't make money at first, and then the commercial guys got interest. Is that flipped with Web3? Because the decentralized nature of the technology means that there is always the quick buck people, and therefore the interest from the commercial and sponsorship teams comes a lot earlier. And actually a lot of the inbound that goes into the clubs and teams, leagues, whatever it may be, it goes directly fobbed off to the partnerships people where maybe if you had a strategist or an innovation lead or whatever it might be, uh, you mentioned Chris Schlosser there, um, someone like that who is a innovation person by nature, yeah. maybe it goes to them and something more interesting happens. That's a really difficult challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm quite interested to see what happens with Jerry Newman. Jerry was at Chelsea. He was my opposite number when I was at City, he was at Chelsea. And he built a lot of the sort of data infrastructure, CRM stuff, way ahead of where most people were thinking about doing it. And then he went off and he worked at Facebook. And he was Mr. Sport for Facebook in Europe for a while. And now he's gone to PSG. And in PSG, he is not running a digital department with a massive load of coders and content people, whatever. Those departments are still existing. And he's got a very small team who work across and facilitate across those departments. And so that sort of organizational setup stands a better chance. Now, you can only do that in an organization when you've got the maturity enough that they've tried enough things, probably failed enough times. And you always get this sort of, let's build it in-house and we'll have a digital department and everybody will be in the digital department. You know, you go through that early phase and then you go through a period where everybody goes, hold on, that's just marketing. That should be in the marketing department. That's just sales. We'll put that out. And then you disband it and put it out. Sometimes you might put it outsourced and then you might bring it back in again. And you go through these sections and PSG has got to a, a stage where, you know, marketing does its stuff, content does its stuff, commercial deal, do they do their thing. And then these very small digital units sits across them and helps them kind of try and get it right. And I think, you know, to your point there about social did it one way. And now we're talking about a technology that's come from the other angle. I totally agree. Like, I totally agree. It's come with embedded in, but partly because of the Bitcoin background. That has set up this expectation of what it's all about money, isn't it? And if anything, the marketing and the content guys have been like a little bit, whoa, <laughs> like not really sure we want to touch this or how do you touch this? Because how does it fit? And, whether, and what they're, you know, they're missing, with my limited knowledge, the technologies that we're talking about here are the answers to the stuff I've been trying to build for 10 years in terms of membership in terms of content distribution, in terms of allocation of funds, in terms of doing smart deals that allow multiple different parties to be able to get their piece of the pie in a way that is not a nightmare from an auditing perspective. You know, like all of that stuff, this technology is tailor-made for it. It's amazing. I and mean, it should be, it will be transformative. That's why with Rematch, I wanted to start dabbling. 
this membership that we've set up, we're talking super small numbers. I just wanted to prove that the model made a difference. You know, when you come to the event, the simple scanning of a QR code will get you into a scavenger hunt. We're in POEP territory, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then suddenly you're in a place where, and you do this one and this one and this one, and then you get a reward and then the reward does that. And it's created a wallet for you without you even knowing, because it's all transparent. It doesn't even look like you're doing the blockchain stuff. You know, it's just a membership. And that Time Travelers Membership Club, we're then going to plug that together with the VR experience that we've built. So you're then doing, okay, so I got a virtual world, a real world, a digital wallet, a membership club that's tying it all together, rewards that are flowing comfortably in every direction. Like this is what everybody will do. I mean, I know some people are already doing it, right? But this is not generally accepted yet. And it's going to facilitate all of that change. Again, I really want to talk about some of that stuff in the second part of the show. But we talked about um, Topshot and the NBA making a bunch of money. One of the things that I found is a misunderstanding from Europe and the rest of the world compared to America, where a lot of the rights holders have been like, we should be doing that and we should be making just as much, if not more money, because we are X or we are Y. But actually, if you look at like buying merchandise, American fans of American sports buy way more merchandise per head than even Premier League fans in Britain. Again, I'll reference Robbie. He talked about British people on average spend more money on gaming than they do Premier League merchandise by a distance. And so actually per head, Premier League fans, for example, in Europe, spend far less money on merchandise than anything else. Maybe not Arsenal fans this season with the Adidas clubs and stuff, but whatever. Yeah, I've got no more money left. Um, That like cultural difference or statistical, maybe anomaly or big, big dichotomy there means that it's almost impossible to just lift and shift and have the same results. Totally agree. I bet if we did a study, there would be a correlation between organizations, sports ones in particular, who have really good audience insight. And those audience insight teams are used to influence the decision-making around new technologies and partnerships and deals. I bet there'd be a correlation between that when it's working well and organizations where it's not in terms of the relative success levels. Because... You're absolutely right. You cannot lift and shift. You can't, there's plenty of instances where you can't even go city to city and expect the same impact and the same reaction, whether that be propensity to spend or the sort of, uh, or the nature of the fandom or the opportunities to be able to monetize in various different ways, like all of these things. You know, people will talk uh, years ago, people were asking me, for, you know, like, how do we go into America? How do we go into India? And the conversation that will be coming for the next 10 years will be, how do we go not even so much Asia and China, I would think, how do we go to Africa? Right, that's going to be a massive, a massive question. And you look at the mobile uptake, you look at the crypto uptake, you look at all the different dynamics. In every one of these cases, you're looking at major conurbations that have pretty much their own ecosystem and quite often their own buying patterns and behaviors and digital behaviors. And yes, you can broadly go, well, American digital behaviors are a bit like this and European ones are a bit like that. And therefore, American sports organizations are a bit like that and European ones are a bit like this. You know, it's very broad brushstrokes. You've got to be breaking down. I mean, the social thing with Germany, fascinating. Again, at the time at which the UK's acceptance and use of social media and monetization of social media was absolutely going through the roof, the likes of Twitter were struggling to get any time, any focus, any attention from the audience in Germany because there's just a cultural mismatch on how it works. It just doesn't connect. And that's broadly still the same. And, you know, equally, you talk about Japan and personal data and the 
controls and concerns and the devices and the extent to which Samsung is always not accepting in various parts of the world. You know, like all of these elements sort of play into it. So you've got to be super, super focused on the understanding of the audience. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. And um, I'm excited to talk about the kind of future of all of that stuff and the this intersection we're both talking about now in, in the second part of the show. But before we move on, I need to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by the HBAR Foundation. The most beloved sports brands understand that what fans want is simple, a reason to be passionate. The HBAR Foundation enables brands and fans to share the passion on-chain using the Hedera Network, the most used sustainable enterprise-grade DLT for the decentralized economy. Visit linkedin.com slash company slash HBAR Foundation to learn more and get the latest HBAR Foundation and Hedera Network news. Welcome back to part two. Um, let's get straight back into it. So where do you think the biggest opportunity lies at this intersection for sports brands? Membership. The ability to be able to solve so many problems, right? It's not easy. And the biggest opportunities really are easy because we're not talking low-hanging fruit here. We're talking about really systemic change. But if you look at what all of the sports organizations are craving it, they want regular touch point, trustworthy connection. They want uh, regular income. They've all got some kind of membership or season ticket or purchasing or connection, the ongoing. And it's all done with a stitch together of a dozen different things. And some organizations are doing it well. I mean, I'm on the Table Tennis England board. Table Tennis is this like incredible game that basically everybody's played at some stage or other. It has half a million people play it on a monthly basis. Do you know that? Half a million people play it. Like, which I is, played last night. Yeah. Okay, good. Where? What? It just locally. Uh, in a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's super accessible. The cost of entry is basically nothing. Bat and ball is, you know, it's easy peasy. And also it taps into incredibly, incredibly diverse audiences, right? So this is opportunity is, is right for growth. Yet... The actual audience membership numbers that you have for Table Tennis England are pretty small. Now, we're going to grow, though, significantly. We've got the World Championships coming up in a couple of years, so there's plenty of reason why we would grow. But we need to make sure that the technical systems that are built around it are just naturally, easily do all the things that blockchain does, all the value that we can do in, in constructing that. Uh, but the same goes for football clubs, right, and their season tickets. And yes, let's take the touts out of the equation. Do you know, in some ways, that is probably the thing that will make it happen, because so many other operational departments will just go, oh, okay, it's going to take away a massive headache. I'll find another way of doing it. The look on your face is like massively unconvinced by that as an No, it's more confused. I don't understand what, why it would solve it. Okay, so this is where like maybe my understanding is completely wrong. But on the basis that if tickets were distributed on the blockchain, you would be able to see that with transparently, you'd be able to see who that came from, what the price was. It's way more trackable, right? Would just go away. And I know that clubs have their secondary ticketing options or they have their own systems for exchanges. All fans always find that massively painful and problematic. And I think actually if that just all got smoothed out, it would suddenly become so much easier. Even friends who, you know, say things about how my ticket, actually there's a family of us yeah. behind it and I have to transfer it to my dad who's 86 and I have to do it more than three hours before the game, but I didn't know if he was going to be well enough to go to the game and now I can't give it to my sister because it's stuck in the thing and, blah, 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 and I've got to give my phone to my aunt because then my aunt can scan. I mean, it's just like slightly mental. It's crazy, isn't it? And all of that should be easily sortable. I mean, like a blockchain technologist would go, yep, no problem, tick, just be done. For some of those issues, I think for sure, I think the one where it's just like a tick is the authenticity and fraud detection, right? 
But I think that's for anything, right? That's for merchandise, that's for like anything that could be defrauded, right? Or copied. Exactly. And therefore, the next adjacent one to that is the micropayments for content, which somebody has recently started trialing that. Is it one of the American teams? But, you know, there's some examples of people starting to fiddle around with, okay, what if my highlights were on? They're not behind a paywall, but they were sort of micropayment done. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, hold on a minute. We've gone back to Steve Jobs and Apple, you know, just sort of deconstructing the entire album myth that the record industry had been selling to everybody for the last 40 years and actually kind of breaking it down into 79p per track. And that worked for a while until we got to Spotify because we all went, oh, it's okay, a subscription and I get everything for free. Like I can feel us going through all of that journey with sports content, you know, and at the same time when you've got all this stuff about the aggregation of services and then the subscription fatigue and then how all that's working backwards, like all of that, uh, those ups and downs, which are major issues for sport and which we're all trying to navigate our way through them. I just feel like the technologies that we've got at, at hand with some work will start to solve big chunks of those problems. Do you think it's really difficult for, I mean, we talked about football specifically, and I think it's definitely further behind technologically than in a lot of other sports, especially in America, right? I think that's also understandable, right? Like, uh, I mean, I remember writing about LAFC, and that's a team that's not even 20 years old or whatever, right? That's nothing compared to an Arsenal that we both support that's 140 years old. And I think when you have those technological systems that are ingrained right in the roots that are very old and are part of very old contracts that are spanning when a stadium opened or when a takeover happened or whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Is it really difficult to go from, we don't even have a functioning like membership t- scheme and logging into a membership portal versus the ticketing place versus the secondary exchange versus where you buy merchandise is all different to let's build a holistic Web3 loyalty system. Okay, so we'll come back to the humans of the problem. So is it technologically difficult? Yes, right, but not, it's fine. It's the kind of thing, you know, a technical project manager would see the way through and map it out. And somebody like my old lot, you know, for Seven League, which is now IMG Digital, right, the IMG department. So Dan Ayres in that lot, is just past my, honestly, he's so damn good at understanding how to make those things all fit together in a way that for the user is smooth for the business, it works, right? So he's tremendous. So there's somebody like him who will absolutely work out to do it. That isn't the problem. The way you glue the technical systems together isn't the issue. The issue is many of those organizations have been sold this technological dream beforehand and it didn't quite work out, mm. slash risk their jobs. Uh, even 10 years ago, I was on a panel and uh, a conference up in Old Trafford and uh, there was, I think he was at the time, the was it the CEO of Everton or the, maybe the CFO? Ed? But either way, like a senior person at Everton. And he was just refusing to accept sort of the CRM mantra. And he was kind of looking at me. We, we, had, a, we had a sort of panel level of a Barney, if you see, a, sort of a polite Barney, because he was basically going, yeah, you guys, you're always selling me the dream or whatever. But actually, and only later in the conversation did he reveal that He'd stuck his neck out and he'd invested in a Siebel software system to run all of his accounting and his membership and his CRM data. And the Siebel system was massively overspecced, like full on enterprise, extremely expensive, incredibly complicated, and just not necessary. So he's been burnt. And that's going to be our issue. Our issue is going to be websites came out and football clubs went, Ugh. Do I need to, oh God, now you're promising me. Social came out and they went, 
Jesus, do I really have to? And you want me to invest what and how many people? And I've had to sack half of them and it didn't deliver the money that it should have done, right? And then along comes the next one and it makes the same sets of promises. That That's our issue is that the new technology is going to get stuck on the humans because you look at the hierarchies. When I'm looking for clients, when I'm looking for partners, as I do with Rematch or clients as they were when I was um, running Seven League, do you know that we used to, I used to have a sort of rudimentary rule of thumb. Look at an organization, understand, is the CEO over or under 50? Is there a high level of technological equipment required in the sport? Because generally, if there is, that means people are a bit more tech savvy and a bit more prepared to spend on a thing because they understand about investing in a, and tech redundancy and all that sort of thing. You know, And you sort of look at the culture of the organization and you'd be, you'd be able to map out pretty easily whether these were people who were going to be able to advance things or not. And you know what your two biggest areas in a sports rights holder to worry about as a technologist, whether you're inside the rights holder trying to make it happen or you're an outside agency or a, or a tech supplier trying to you know influence it, there's two batches of people you need to be careful about. Number one, your sales guys. Because very often, and I've come across tremendous salespeople I've worked with who are so damn smart, but also they are not incentivized to make a new technological thing work. And there's your problem. Because in one case, again, I won't name names for diplomatic reasons, uh, but in one case, we were doing a big strategy project, properly would have been game-changing in football. And the sales guy kept just asking really clever, niggly questions that required us to go away and do a bit more research and a bit more research and test that and whatever. And only after a few months did I realize he, he was just buying time. Mm. Because in the meantime, he was closing a deal and another deal and another deal that all had three and five year windows on the back of them. So he was just, he was just, he was just sort of filibustering and creating a space where he could close the deal. And the other constituency that's always a challenge is the lawyer's. Because quite rightly, they are incentivized to be highly protective of this club and uh, all this body and not allow it to get itself exposed and in trouble and water and everything. And internally, if you're the evangelist internally or you're the external body, your job is to address those two audiences and help them understand and provide them with what they need so that they will work with you. Because if those two are working against you inside an organization or inside sport, it ain't ever going to happen. And that's our problem. Yeah, a lot of sport and crypto subscribers and readers and consumers of the content some of them are lawyers and i don't know if that's a good thing or a worrying thing for me oh no i, I that's good i mean it, this is not a they are bad people this is a they are very powerful in this dynamic yeah. of the acceptance i more meant like how is my information helping those people decide well th- and therefore if they're if they're subscribing to your stuff that's a tick that means they're educating themselves, they're reading, they're doing more. And I'd, I won't be wanting to say to them, yeah, and who else are you looking at? Who else are you reading? Are you, what's the breadth you're getting? Mm. You know, and then that's somebody you do want to... Actually, do you know what I should do is ask you for your list of subscribers because I bet the people on there are the kinds of people I do want to be working with because I bet they're forward thinking. Well, let's go to America outside of GDPR laws, sort that out, and then... Then it's fine. I'm not actually going to do that. Before any <laughs> lawyers reading, call me up on it. I want to quickly ask you... The term fan engagement has become a huge buzzword. And that's pre-Web3 boom and sports partnership, right? But it's been used a lot in tandem with that technology. Why are sports brands more obsessed now than ever with engaging their fans digitally? Attention economy. The chickens are coming home to roost, basically. I'm going to start mixing metaphors. Is that because sports are no longer competing with each other they're competing, as you said, in that general attention. Sports company. were never competing with each other. 
that's just stupidity. That's playground stupidity. You know, you're not competing for the column inches on the back pages. You're competing for the audience's attention. If you think that you're competing, I'm like, I know everybody competes to do the rights deal with the broadcaster who's only going to do one deal because they've only got so much money because then you get to that broadcaster. Well, what's been pretty damn obvious over the last 20 years is that that broadcaster is also in a very challenged situation because guess what? The internet has been undermining him. The games world is incredibly powerful and wonderful. And those games guys, they do not care. They are merrily off engaging audiences and having fun and providing services that fit. And they are growing so powerful games. And sport has mostly sat on its arse, sat on its laurels, sitting there taking the TV money going, well, like, why should we really innovate that much? You know, we'll dabble around the edges maybe, but, you know, we're not really convinced about the long-term value. In the meantime, the audience has just continued to go, continue to shift. So now you're in a scenario where you go, you know, and this is where the hippie in me gets upset about it because this sport stuff is incredibly powerful. It is the mental and physical health of a nation. But actually, they've been asleep at the wheel. Because what's happened is the games industry is just, which is also wonderful stuff that I very much enjoy, by the way, the games industry has just kind of cracked on and built massive audiences with incredible engagement. And that attention has just shifted. Now, guys, we're going to have to fight and find another way of connecting with our audiences. So yes, fan, I mean, fan engagement as a phrase has been around for, I'm going to say 10 years, but it's probably longer. And you're right, it's become too much of a buzzword, but it's because of this same challenge. This, this challenge has not gone away and it's not going to get any easier. You know, my biggest worry with that phrase is the use of the word fan. Honestly, I think it's the most dangerous word around sport. Why? It triggers a whole bunch of assumptions. It uses one word to describe what are multiple audiences. So you're telling me that some of the sports brands who claim they have like 2 billion fans don't yeah. actually have... Yeah, I know. It's remarkable, isn't it? Wow. Even if they said it was different types of... I wouldn't worry so much about the number. It's just the sense that the number of times people have said to me, yeah, we know what the fans want. And I'm like, oh my God, you t- hold on a minute, right? What fans? What are you talking about? Are you talking about the grannies or are you talking about the seven-year-olds? Are you talking about the ones here or the ones over there? Are you talking about the rich ones or the poor ones? Like, And that's just the world's simplest matrix. But once you get into the complexities of behaviors and backgrounds and love of a sport or understanding of a sport and all of that sort of stuff in there, you go, okay, okay, this is a complicated matrix that needs to be addressed correctly. Fan engagement is not fan engagement. It's audiences and it's in the attention economy. How do I attract audiences and then retain them? It's customer acquisition, retention, monetization. It's not, I was going to say it's not rocket science, right? It's you know, reach, retain, monetize, reach, retention, revenue, I used to call it all the time just because I love anything with alliteration. But um, yeah, that's why it's the focus. So you're most bullish on loyalty, membership when it comes to Web3 and sport. What do you think is being overhyped? All of it. <laughs> all of it. I did like, I, I was thinking about whether I'm just being a nitpicky pedantic, but like, can you overhype? I mean, because hype itself is the problem. Honestly, when I say all of it, I like I, I wish we just get rid of the hype and just understand that you know the hype, hype is not a good thing. I feel like there's a very much American dot com kind of dummy. Like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna hype it, like it's a verb. It's not a verb. It's not something you want to do. Hype is bad. Full stop. Excitement, promotion, engagement around something. Yeah, absolutely for sure. But the hype is the issue. The hype is that we've kind of got carried away with all the different types of hype. The result of that is a cumulative overhype, so to speak. So, yeah, I think we just need to take it all down a notch and then do a little bit more understanding of audiences and longer term and, oh, we've been through this before, and then what did we do last time? Why don't we learn from what we did last time 
and try and not just repeat the same mistakes that we did of flogging stuff because we can and then working out later on that maybe that wasn't the smartest thing to do. What are crypto skeptics or Web3 skeptics write about that the actors in this space need to get better at? Understanding of audiences and the branding, the way in which you communicate that. They are right about that. Now, first of all, would it be okay if we got rid of the word crypto? Because, like, it's not helpful. I mean, I realise it's going to cause you a bit of an issue with the podcast. Yeah, and, and, uh, I've been asked to rebrand it a few times, but it's kind of stuck <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I know. If it makes you feel any better, I tried to launch a green.com in 2007-89, which was about aggregation of data to make it easier for you to be green, you know, on everything from what's the right thing to recycle and where do I go and what am I, the bills and who's the best provider of energy, like all that stuff. It was a good idea. Of course, it crashed up against the rocks of the global economic crisis. But whilst I was away on holiday, my partners came up with a name for that, which was EcoBomb, which has <laughs> got to be the worst name. Like, if you Google, That's made me feel better. Yeah, exactly. If you Googled EcoBomb, like, it was not good. It was all, you know. Yeah. Any, anyway, so if we could just get rid of the word crypto, that'd be great. But fundamentally, I think those cynics are right that there is a problem around the understanding of audiences and the understanding of products and how those two fit together and then how you communicate that and how, how you brown that. There's still too much. Even I, I was listening to a podcast the other day and was it Kraken? I kept one of the services where it was all like, hey, it's cool and amazing. And then the terms and conditions that they read at the end of the audio were, you may lose your entire life and you know that this is an extraordinarily high risk of investment and be very careful that you know what you do. It was one of those. I was kind of like, yeah. And I'm glad it's there as a warning, but that is part of our issue is that the branding around this, the way we communicate, there's a lot of, there's a lot of masculinity in there. That's too much, a bit too much testosterone. We could dial that down a little bit. We could do better with a little less black and cool fonts and a little bit more just normal behavior. And if you were targeting that at audiences, I think we'd do that better. That would be great. What are they wrong about? Cultural mismatch. There are plenty of people who say kind of Corinthians in their thinking, but it's sport. This treasured possession of society that is a special thing that must be, you know, kept in a, and oh no, but that doesn't really go with any of your crypto stuff and your blockchain stuff. Like, oh, how, how are those going to, like, it doesn't fit. You know, you get a bit of that dynamic going on there. That's rubbish. That's complete bollocks. And, and we need to get rid of that sort of cultural mismatch. It's the other way around. Sport, I mean, I know I'm generalizing, but I've never met, in all the sectors I've worked in, the reason why I like working in sport is because the people in it by and large, are way more progressive. Like, tell me what I need to do to win the game and I will do it. That's how they think. Not, and then I will have a working party about it for nine months and we'll never do anything and we'll just wander off an airy-fairy. They're not like that, sports business people. And I think when shown how to use technology and provide it and deliver it in a way that makes a difference, they will absolutely crack on with it. So I don't see any cultural mismatch. And that's something that is often thrown at this area, which I don't think is... Correct. And to wrap up, I want to ask you what your thoughts as, as you say, uh, an observer and as outsider of the FTX implosion that we saw last year and also the recent Binance DOJ fine, which was a record of $4.3 billion and the CEO CZ stepping down, that, the optics of that, and also the regulatory proceedings that we're seeing. What's your view on, on that side of things? I'm probably not well enough informed, but... But that's why I've asked it. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, fair enough. The layman's perspective is the numbers are very, very big 
And therefore, the perception of risk and issues around it and the impact around it is very, very big. I thought the FTX stuff with the political influencing that he was clearly doing in the background, I thought that was really interesting on how that was working. I think all of the, hey, we're calling for regulation. Give us regulation. And aren't we responsible in doing so? And then, oh, no, hold on. Actually, we're still being dodgy around the edges. Like, that's not a great look and doesn't work terribly well. It is interesting watching, as you say, the scale of the fines, the scale of the penalties that are coming indicates to a degree the connection to the power of the technology and how it's been dealt with. And to the point you were making earlier on, the fact that it's a lot of this has come from a sort of fintech background with an understanding of the impact that you can have economically around that, that makes a lot of people scared and, and worried and therefore it needs to be dealt with properly, as it were. There's a lot of hyperbole. There's a lot of overreaction in the media. There's a film, Dumb Money, that's come out just recently, um, which is the... Oh, the... Um, that was all about... The um, AMC GameStop. Yes. Yeah. It's all GameStop. I need to watch that. Yeah. And do you remember there was another film, was about the subprime mortgages that were about 10 years oh, ago? Oh, the short. Yeah. I feel like we need one of those. <laughs> like, can I have a mainstream film, please, that just sort of helps everybody understand how... There's some really exciting and interesting dynamics in here and there's some serious numbers and some power plays going on, but it kind of would be a good thing if everybody had a better grip on it. Oh, there'll be a film about the SBF. It's coming. I'm sure it's coming. Are you in it? Are you you going to audition? You're going to, no, okay. For what role? I mean, I I, I was writing a newsletter about it. um, There you go. Last year. Yeah, you could be the the everyman newsletter writer, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some better reporters at Coindesk and I'm not even a journalist, so, you know, why would you you want to use me? Um, Let's wrap up there. Richard, where can people find out more about you and Rematch? Rematch is on rematchlive.com and Rematch Live on all the social platforms. And I'm Richard at rematchlive.com. If anybody wants to get in touch, like, Clearly, anybody who's watched this and got this far will know that I need some educating and I'm very open to it and would love to sort of, you know, chew things over and work on it. That would be great. So yeah, do get in touch. Get in touch and help that man. Um, you can find me at Pet Barisha on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find us at sportingcrypto.com and also you can subscribe to the newsletter and podcast at sportingcrypto.substack.com. You can find us on Apple, Spotify. Uh, please leave us a review if you're listening to either of those and please do subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're watching there. Just remember that none of what we have said during the show is financial or business advice and this content is for informational purposes only. Web3 is underpinned by crypto and crypto is volatile, meaning you can lose money if you are buying these assets personally or as a business. Where we are recording right now in the UK, the majority of crypto asset companies are unregulated. Once again, thanks so much for consuming this content and we'll have more sporting crypto for you soon.